Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Burntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Hello and welcome to the Drabblecast, episode 137. The Drabblecast is a weekly flash fiction audio podcast that brings strange stories by strange authors to strange listeners, such as yourself. I'm your host, Norm Sherman. Sorry we missed you last week. I must have inhaled some aerosolized pig brains or something. That kinda knocked off my feet. Gonna make it up to you folks this week by chucking an ass load of flash at ya. A doubleheader special this week with two short short pieces by Igor Tepper and a story popping out on the Drabblecast B-Sides feed. If you like Drabblecast and you haven't subscribed to our other podcast, you should definitely do so. These are the stories growing along the cracks in the tiles and the creepy half-bath downstairs connected to the Drabblecast basement. You don't want to miss them. Go to Drabblecast.org and check out the Drabblecast B-Sides link at the top to find us. Before we get into our feature stories this week, let's start things off right with a hundred-word Drabble story. Drabble. This week's Drabble is called Yarn, and it comes to us from Steve Lidster. Residing in the Selwood district of Portland, Oregon, Steve is a lifelong native Oregonian who is dedicated to the cause of keeping Portland weird. Steve lives with his wife, daughter, and three sons, and the best brother in the world who is safely stuffed away in their attic. He's also known as R.O.U. Killing Time, the notorious Drabblecast forums hog, and you can find his blog, Clowns, Bunnies, and Other Scary Things, at sdlidster.wordpress.com, which you'll find in our show notes. Michael looked down, frowning at the errant strand poking forth from the weave of his sweater. He idly tugged at it, and it smoothly drew forth. Pulling faster at the multicolored yarn, loops and coils formed at his feet. He toiled on, nearly buried by the mass of fibers. Finally, the thread drew taut, and Michael gave one ultimately satisfying tug. At the far end of the cosmic string, where it was firmly secured to the supermassive black hole at the center of the galaxy, a small piece of space-time fabric tore free. With a hissing wheeze, the galaxy deflated. Our doubleheader special this week features two stories, Quantum P.I. and The Last Outlaw by Igor Tepper. Igor lives with his wife in the San Francisco Bay Area and spends his days teaching old Adams new tricks at temperatures near absolute zero, meaning he's doing postdoc work at Stanford University, experimenting with quantum non-demolition measurements of light coupled into a high-finesse optical cavity, potentially improving the sensitivity of atom interferometric measurements. His fiction has been published in Strange Horizons, Abyss and Apex, and Nature, among others. 
Igor's work first appeared on Drabblecast in episode 118, The Relativity Prison, and these two stories first appeared in Sun and Foe in 2006. Joining me in the narration, we welcome back Kim the Comic Book Goddess, the personality behind the Geek Pantheon podcast, and your moment of Kim, all of which I highly recommend to fellow lovers of geekdom and dry, witty humor. So, without further ado, Quantum P.I. by Igor Tepper. The world is full of obvious things, which nobody, by any chance, ever observes. Sherlock Holmes I was flipping through the latest quantum physics lettuce when I heard the click-click of high heels approach my office door and stop. Come on in, I yelled a split second before the knock. She did. Somewhere in the back of my mind, a cash register rang. The clothes were the best money could buy. All designer, self-regulating polymers and molecular computers. And a body and face had been sculpted to be just imperfect enough to be better than perfect. But it was his skin. Her skin. Smooth, unblemished, and positively glowing. I had to keep myself from reaching out to touch it. Mr. Eisenstein. (laughs) She had her vocal cords done, too. Call me Paul. Have a seat. I put down the magazine and leaned across my desk. That skin. Joanne Silva told me you might be able to help me. Ah, yeah. The brooch. Emerald and diamonds, with a built-in ultra-miniaturized telerecorder whose contents the Silvas had not divulged. Their pet marmoset had hidden it in its cage, where they'd found it two weeks later. That's right. Joanne told me you can help find anything that you guarantee success. I had to smile. (laughs) Not quite. What is it you need to find? She looked down, as if searching for the answer in the imitation wood grain of my desk. My uh, wedding ring. Her skin was even more radiant when she blushed. I take it your husband does not know you've lost it? She nodded. Will you help me? Let me explain to you what it is I do, Mrs. Uh... Shelby. Meredith Shelby. Well, Mrs. Shelby, I don't know how familiar you are with the principles of quantum mechanics. One look at her and I knew the answer was not at all. Anyways, they tell us that when something's lost and until it's found... It exists simultaneously in all the places it could have been lost. And whenever anyone observes one of its possible locations, there is some probability that it will be found there. And if it's not found there, then it must be in one of the other places it could have been lost. And the chances of finding it in each of those places goes up. The important thing to realize is that checking one of the item's possible locations will help find it, even if it is eventually found someplace else. I'd seen the look on her face a hundred times before. I leaned in closer and spoke more slowly. What I'm saying is this, Mrs. Shelby. Suppose your wedding ring can be found in one of two places. I look in one of those places and don't find it. Then you check the other and do find it there. 
according to the laws of quantum mechanics, it turns out that you may well not have found it in the second location if I hadn't previously looked for it in the first. And therefore, even though I failed to have found it, I deserved much of the credit for its being found. When your friend said I guaranteed success, what she meant was that if your ring is not found within three months, I'll give you a full refund. On the other hand, if it is found by anyone, then I will have contributed to its discovery and will insist on being paid. These are my terms. I was almost ashamed to see Furrows mar the perfect smoothness of her forehead. How much do you charge? She said, eventually. I told her. The furrows deepened. Half is due up front, I said. And the rest, when your ring is found. If it isn't found within 90 days, I will return your money. If you don't trust me, I'd be happy to provide references. She was still hesitant, but wouldn't be for long. Your friend who recommended me. You think she has any regrets about hiring me? No, no. She was very happy. Yeah, think she stays up late at night worrying that maybe she could have saved a bit of money and not hired me and found her brooch anyway? I'm sure she thinks it was worth it. <laughs> I'm sure she thinks it was too, I said. Then I went in for the kill. Think of it this way. If you hire me and your ring is found, are you really going to be all that upset about having to pay me? And if it's not found, you'll have your money back, and you'll also have the knowledge that you didn't pass up an opportunity to increase the chances of finding it. Whereas, if you don't hire me and the ring isn't found, I let the implication hang in midair for her to contemplate. All right. She said when she'd had enough contemplation. I'll think about it. She stood up. When the door closed behind her, there was no doubt in my mind that she'd call me back by the end of the week. Even in a world governed by quantum mechanics, there are certainties. And in the long run, statistics like the fact that two-thirds of all lost valuables are found within three months can be just as good as a sure thing. The Last Outlaw by Igor Tepper Sam Android found Gale Galaxy skipping monopoles off the inactive accretion disk of a small black hole on the outskirts of the galaxy. Every once in a while, she shot one in at too large an angle, and it was captured by the black hole and with a blinding burst of x-rays, swallowed up. I was wondering when you'd get here. Sam sensed a trap. He'd been chasing her all over the galaxy for thousands of years. It made no sense for her to simply give herself up like this. And the relative ease with which he'd been able to track her Singularity Drive's x-ray trail made him even more suspicious. Gale? If you surrender peacefully, you will not be harmed, he cast. I'm not going anywhere, Sam. This is it. Power down your reactor and prepare to... I don't think you understand, Sam. 
I'm not going anywhere with you. I came here to die. Dust turns to roll. Before Sam was able to fully process the idea, she requested a visual connection. He agreed. The face that appeared on the screen was not Gale Galaxies. Or rather, it was not the Gale Galaxy that had been terrorizing human colonies since before Sam was built. This was a grotesque caricature, sagging, wrinkled, pathetic. What kind of trick? No trick, Sam. I turned off my nano rejuvenators. I've aged. Why? Sam couldn't keep himself from asking. To see what it would feel like. To remind myself what being human was all about. Tell me, Sam, how many humans are left in the galaxy? Well, I intercepted a communication from one of the holdout worlds 15 years ago. They suspected they were the last, but they were hoping to contact others like them. They may have transcended by now. Almost certainly. No one could resist transcendence for very long. Then she added, so quietly, that Sam may have missed it if he hadn't seen her lips move. Not even me. A question occurred to Sam Android just then that had somehow never occurred to him before. Before he had a chance to ask it, Gale Galaxy said, What were you planning on doing with me once you caught me? Take you back to stand trial before the tribunals. She let out a weak chuckle. <laughs> Yes, I suppose the tribunals don't need humanity in order to administer humanity's laws. Her smile slowly faded, and her eyes lost their focus. There are probably whole worlds out there still running as smoothly as ever. Even more smoothly, with no people to get in the way. I don't imagine anyone thought to turn off the machines before transcending. Come with me, Gale Galaxy. Sam Android blurted out and was startled by the note of desperation in his voice. I will plead for a reduced sentence on your behalf. <laughs> That's sweet, Sam, but I've made my choice. I am glad you came, though. I waited, hoping you'd come. I wanted to say goodbye. She looked down and blinked twice. When she looked up again, it took all of Sam's will not to look away. Goodbye, Sam Android. Goodbye, Gale Galaxy. With a burst of X-rays from her engines, she was gone, skimming over the accretion disk and into the black hole's embrace. And with another burst of X-rays, she was gone forever. Whether we transcend mortality by singularity-esque uploading of the human consciousness, or just by drinking the vital everlasting essence of Gelflings, living forever may not be all it's cracked up to be, huh? Cautionary tales are great and all, but I bet we're still going to have to learn that lesson the hard way. Mm. Let's do some story feedback. The last doubleheader special, actually, on author Bruce Holland Rogers, with his stories A Baker's Dozen and The Wrong Cart. Rogers apparently knocked him out of the park with these. Praxis said, Loved both of these. Baker's Dozen was an honest, heartwarming tale of two people appreciating what they have, and I laughed and laughed at the improv ideas for the different breads and cakes. It has restorative powers. Oh, really? 
sweet and charming. The Wrong Cart was just barmy, and from such a simple premise, made me laugh a lot, especially when I realized what was going to happen when they went to the hotel. Mr. Tweedy said, I especially liked The Wrong Cart, because although it was totally ridiculous, it did illustrate a principle that I discovered almost immediately upon getting my first real job. The principle is this, people are more interested in avoiding blame than achieving goals. People are strongly inclined to let a problem persist if they fear they might be blamed for any consequences associated with correcting it. If something is perceived as nobody's fault, or just the way things are, people will just let it be, no matter how bad it is. The wrong card was just a simple over-the-top way to illustrate that. Good insight. Then the next week we ran a dystopic utopian story by Jay Lake called Over the Walls of Eden where a space explorer-surveyor encountered a planet full of wild children. People praised this story's style, while also admitting diminished capacity on the complex mechanics of the virus itself that was central to the story. Mike Deschain said, Yes, this was so awesomely written. I liked it, I think. I mean, I know what happened in the story, and Lake is a wonderful storyteller, though I couldn't help but feel like something had escaped me at the end. Maybe I'm just too feeble-minded to get it without grimy little clown hatchlings. Phenopath said, I found this story very confusing. I presume that the mechanics of the virus do not make sense because the story is allegorical. However, I spent most of the time trying to understand the meaning and failed. And Tom Baker also said, I don't think the virus mechanics were clearly explained. It sounded like they were explained, but when asked, none of us could say for sure what the mechanics are. To me, that got in the way of the story as well. After much geeky epidemiological hashing out of the virus, Jay Lake himself joined our forums and confirmed our theoretical conclusions, also saying, For what it's worth, I invariably believe that the story belongs to the reader, but it's always a treat when my vision and the reader's vision line up so well. Join our forums and say hello. A lot of good stuff going on there, including our weekly 100-character TwitFix story contest, the winner of which this week was Algernon Sidney again getting to put another notch on his twitfic belt. Here goes. In desperation, not duty, the Secret Service man leapt into the bullet's path. At last, no more speeches, he thought. Think you can beat that? Well, go ahead and write one and post it. We've got a hundred-character TwitFic forum thread going with your name on it. Literally, it's titled Mr. Pubes O'Reilly. Follow us on Twitter for the weekly goods. Friend us on Facebook if you're a real social networking fiend. The Drabblecast kick-ass donor of the week this week is... Don Boos. After emailing Don to thank him for his generous donation to our humble little podcast, Don replied, Wow, that was the second best thank you for a monetary-based superficial friendship that I've ever received. The first being 20 years ago from a girl named Crystal at a rest stop overlook at 2 o'clock in the morning. And even that thank you involved several painful shots of penicillin afterwards. Since our superficial friendship hasn't involved painful urination, upon receipt of your thank you note, I was immediately compelled to hop onto PayPal and send you over another little piece of pie. Thank you, Don. Don lives in Northern Virginia with his wife, the short Chinese woman, and two boys, the skinny kid and the fat kid. He works for a large North American telecommunications company that begins with the letter V. Hmm. Vingular. 
In his spare time, he runs a dorky little screenwriting website called Simply Scripts, which each month has a one-week challenge wherein aspiring writers have a week to write a short 10-12-page screenplay on a particular theme and genre. This is a really fun challenge, and I know a lot of our listeners would get a kick out of this. Check them out at simplyscripts.com and get in on the action. A couple months ago, the challenge was to write a screenplay and lyrics based on a musical track, which I provided. It was the instrumental part of the last Bartle I ran on the show, A Heartache Over Innsmouth, and it was fun seeing what people came up with. Good times. Be awesome like Dawn and throw a donation our way via the support options on our website, travelcast.org. You can even subscribe for an automatic subscription of just five bucks a month, which would be mighty keen of you. The show is free for you, but not for us, so help us offset some of the costs here, people. Speaking of help, thanks to Liz Mirzieski for creating our wonderful episode art this week. Liz's art has appeared on the Doonstief, Expanded Horizons, and Clone Pod. Her stories can be heard or seen at the Drabblecast, Doonstief, Clone Pod, Toasted Cheese, Motherverse, and Expanded Horizons. She raises butterflies in her living room and teaches a class about dinosaurs, but sometimes wishes it could be the other way around. Liz's art can be found at the Big Purple Couch, which also has links to several of her other published stories. We'll have that linked in our show notes. So, that's our show. The Drabblecast uses a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license, which means don't change it, don't sell it, just share it, man. We'll see you next week. Till then, our staff is made up of co-editors Kendall Marchman, Luke Coddington, and yours truly, Norm Sherman, reminding you that this won't hurt. We just want to drain your living essence. Greetings, adventurers. Today we're excited to introduce you to a new story, Dark Dice, a horror podcast that blurs the line between actual play and audio drama, where the story is determined by the roll of the dice. Six adventurers embark on a journey into the ruinous domain of the Nameless God. They will never be the same again. One of the players is not what they seem after a doppelganger, a creature that can assume the form and voice of whatever it kills, infiltrates the team. As the players are picked off and replaced one at a time, can they figure out who the monster is before it's too late? Can you? Here's a quick example of what our show sounds like. The, uh, shambler with the jar of liquid inside of him. Soren Arkwright let loose an arrow that cracked the glass, passing through the spine of the creature. The shambler still managed to maintain its forward momentum, but stumbled as it eagerly tried to bite and swipe at Soren, landing near his feet. As Jeff Goldblum has now joined our cast, Dark Dice is available however you listen to podcasts.